Welcome everyone to the table. My name is Debbie Manning. I'm one of the pastors here at the table and we're so glad you're joining us tonight. And we're also really excited because one week from tonight, we actually get to meet in person for the first time since March. And we'll be doing that outside in the parking lot right here at Bethlehem Lutheran Church on the corner of Lindale and 41st. So we really, really, really help you guys all uh, join us for that night. We are taking all great precautions so that we can do it safely, that we can gather and worship and hear a message, and we can actually lay eyes on each other. Lay eyes on each other because we will have masks on. So we encourage you to go to our website, thetablempls.com, and there you can register. We'd love to have you all register because then we can get an idea of how many pods to set up in the parking lot so we can keep our social distancing. And uh, just in case you can't, you're still welcome. We want everyone to come. But we really, really, really encourage everyone to try to do that. One other big announcement. We are actually going to try to do our lay care training again. We had that all scheduled for last spring and COVID hit. So September 27th, it's a Sunday morning from 9 a.m. to noon over at my house, 4517 DuPont Avenue South. We are going to run uh, lay care training. The the leaders of the care team will be there, and uh, we encourage you to go online as well and register for that. And as a reminder, the lay care ministry is a ministry of lay people who show up and listen and love people when they're going through hard times, whether it's uh, you know, health issues or emotional crisis. Um, it's about being a loving presence. So anyone who'd like to be part of that, we would welcome you to join us in that. We're anticipating that this will be a hard winter for people as COVID continues on. So we want to make sure that we are equipped and ready to care for one another. So thanks for that. Two other quickies. One, if you want to be connected to the table, all you need to do is text TABLE to 33222. And we will get you connected. And you can uh, know all the goings on in the table community. And last but not least, we are always overwhelmed and grateful for your generosity because uh, you guys uh, in this difficult time you are doing it and we just want you to know how much we appreciate that that we can still continue to be the church and uh, doing that the best we can and we can only do that with your help so if you aren't a regular giver you can go to our website and you can click on the giving tab and you can um, give right there so with that Appreciate you guys being with us tonight. We're so, so, so excited for next week. So be hoping and praying for good weather. And uh, at this point, I'll turn it over to Matt with the message. Hey, good evening, friends. My name is Matt Moberg. I'm one of the pastors here at the table. And just to echo really quickly what Debbie just said, we do have an exciting service next weekend. We are gathering here at Bethlehem Lutheran Church, not inside, but outside in the parking lot. And we would love nothing more than for you to join us. So please make that a priority. Please register prior to, because we would, we're excited about it. We're looking forward to it. It's going to be a fun time together. So make it happen. Uh, before we get there, though, we're going to go into a text here. This summer, we have been carried by the lectionary calendar with the Big C Church, which is a weekly rhythm of reading through a gospel, a psalm, Pauline letter, a, a text from the Hebrew Bible, a text from the prophets. You have this wide selection of, of texts you can look at, and we're going to do so one more time tonight. And, and perhaps with a text that we often don't go to, we're going to go to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel. 
Ezekiel is Bougie's boy. That is his dad's name that I just found out this morning. His dad's name is Bougie. Debbie, did you actually know that Bougie, some people believe, is, is Jer- Jeremiah? I, I wouldn't say it's like the predominant thought, but a lot of people actually thought Bougie and Jeremiah. That's not important for the purpose of this. Ezekiel, Bougie's boy, he, he was a prophet, but first when he stepped onto the scene, he was training as a priest. That was the career path that he initially set his feet, feet on when he was in the city of Jerusalem, up until that one day when everything in the city of Jerusalem came to an end. In 587 BC, as many of you are aware, uh, that's when the Babylonian boots came into the holy city and unleashed hell. Everything stopped that day for the Israelites. That was their, um, their day that would live on in infamy. It was their 9-11, their, their Pearl Harbor moment of sorts. The Babylonians come in, and though they spared the city, they stole all of the citizens. And so what you have in 587 is this group of Israelites who get ex- escorted into exile by the Babylonians. And in that first wave of exiles is Ezekiel the priest who is now wandering in a foreign land. That's actually where we first get introduced to the prophet Ezekiel. He is sitting on the banks of a river in Babylon, and as if that like whole scene isn't tragic and heartbreaking enough as is, it gets even worse because it's his 30th birthday. We meet Ezekiel on his 30th birthday when he is already mourning the death of his 20s, but he's also mourning much more than that because When he set out on his priestly path and he dreamed about the day he turned 30, this is not what he had in mind. When you turn 30 in the ancient Israelite tradition, that is when you were officially ordained as a priest in the holy city of Jerusalem. And yet here we have Ezekiel sitting on the banks of a Babylonian river wondering how did everything go so wrong? How did we get here when we were just over there? How did that happen? Now, I don't know what exactly was going through Ezekiel's mind. I don't know if he had been doing some birthday drinking, but quickly we find out that God provides him with this wild scene where he starts seeing things that nobody thought could be seen. He looks across the river, and there is this storm cloud that's approaching him, and in this cloud he sees figures with four faces. He sees boots and wheels underneath each of these creatures, But then on top of it all, he sees this ruler that is sitting on the throne that is approaching him at a rather rapid pace. And somehow, as Ezekiel is down in the dumps on the side of this river, he sees the cloud, he sees the creatures, and he sees the ruler on top, and he's able to discern what he sees and connect the dots and goes, hey, you know what that is right there? This is the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. It's God riding on God's royal throne is what he eventually concludes. But what I think is interesting about that vision is not just how bizarre it is, but also like when you lean in and look at the language that's actually being employed. The word for glory here, God's glory that is talked about here is the word kavod, and it speaks to uh, a weight. It speaks to the physical manifestation of God's significance, the kavod of God, God's weighty presence. What's interesting though is that if you were Ezekiel and all that were in exile, you would have heard, God's down by Babylon. I thought God never left Jerusalem. What is God doing here? Why is the beauty of God showing up in the badlands of Babylon? I thought God was stuck at home, so why is God suddenly showing up here? And Ezekiel, he has the burden of eventually finding out. 
Ezekiel gets called by God to eventually go out and call out God's people. You see, if you follow the story of the Israelites in Babylon, you quickly find out that they, they went to wandering. They start to stray from the path that they were called to take on, and they start practicing extortion. They're making uh, profits on the poor. They're creating violence. They're leaving bellies unfilled and bodies unhoused, and it is, it is, it is horrifying. The whole thing, the plot has been completely lost. In fact, if you go to Ezekiel chapter 8, there's this funny imagery where it says that God, as he is, is, is taking in all that is going down, it says that God's nose started to tweak like he was disgruntled, couldn't stand the smell of what was happening. But the whole problem was that the people in power, they were smelling roses while God was smelling sewers. They couldn't pick up what God was taking in. Didn't smell so bad from them. For those in power, they were getting very good at a game that wasn't actually very good for them. Which is why God inserts a prophet into this moment. In fact, a prophet that is so bizarre, Ezekiel at one point, write this one down, he cooks his food over poop to make a point. If you can't smell how rotten things have become, don't mind me, I'll help you get to that place. I'm going to teach you a lesson by cooking some burgers, some pizza over poop. That's the extent that Ezekiel is trying to go, and yet the people refuse to listen. But he goes to these wild extents. He, at one point, takes out his sword and cuts all of his hair off and starts sharpening it up. He builds up like this Lego model of Jerusalem and then stages an attack on it to show people what is happening. But the people, they don't actually listen. But, but please listen to this. Don't miss the point of the prophet. You see, prophets, they have many different roles. But there's two primary like, operating systems that you see prophets walk in to the story with. There is the Moses-type prophet who comes and tells the, the enslaved people that they could actually be free. But then there is the Jesus-type prophet and the Ezekiel-type prophet and the Amos-type prophet who tell the people that think that they are free, that they are actually enslaved and that there is a better way forward still. That's what Ezekiel is coming in here to try to push people towards. And, and if you think about the Moses type of prophet and the Jesus type of prophet and the two different operating systems, we need both of them. Both of these prophets are completely essential, but we tend to adore the former and abandon the latter because for many of us, and I'd say myself included, true freedom isn't a familiar thing. And so when I consider my options, I guess I would rather stay in the predictability of slavery than I would want to step into the possibilities of freedom. I'd rather go back to familiar addictions. I'd rather go back to nursing old wounds than I would want to open myself up to new ones. I'd rather get back into toxic relational patterns, toxic emotional states that I guess have always felt normal to me because if given the choice, I'm going to take normal over new every time. I, don't, I, I know that I say this quote all the time, maybe every other sermon, maybe that's the, the rate I'm at right now, but I just want you to hear again what Auden is saying because it is a diagnosis of our condition that stands true time and time again when he writes that we as human beings, we would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather be ruined than changed. Why? Because we don't like the taste we don't like the taste of tension. We don't like how it smells to actually be stretched. Unless, of course, it's on TV. Then we don't mind it so much. 
I mean, if I'm going to watch a movie, I'm not interested in watching a movie of you getting out of bed and having a perfect cup of coffee with no interruptions, no drama, you have a good day, sun shining from dusk to dawn. I'm not interested in that very much. I want some drama. I want some, some Rudy. I want some Rocky. I want some hidden figures. I want somebody who gets pushed around and we get to watch their story to see if they're actually going to stand back up. That's what we want in our stories. And I think that that's actually what we would perceive to be key ingredients inside of all stories. And so isn't it crazy to you that the very things that we perceive to be key ingredients in good stories are so often the very things that we pray will never show up in our own? We don't want that kind of tension. We don't want that kind of drama. We don't want the conflict. We don't want the interruption. We want free and easy down the road I go. And then we have the audacity to call our lives a story when really we're just reading off a script. We're missing the point. Um, when I think about that odd and quote, I was talking to my family about this the other day, and, and uh, we were talking about how this idea of tension and the reality that you need tension if you're actually going to take on new levels of growth. I have this memory from last, it was probably January. We bought a set of dumbbells thinking that we were going to, you know, get in shape. We never got around to that, though. But we had these dumbbells in our living room, and I saw Wyatt pick up one of the dumbbells, and he's flexing his muscles prior to, like showing me what he's working with, but then he picks up the dumbbells and he does one or two reps and he sets them back down, checks out his arms and he goes, Dad, I don't, I don't think these things are working. <laughs> I don't think it's getting the job done. I think you got sold. These dumbbells are broken. See, we know when we talk about the weight room, we know we're talking about physically getting bigger and stronger and more in shape. We know that we only get stronger when we stretch, but that applies in all of our rooms. What's true in the weight room is true in every area of your walk. How long you are willing to live inside of the tension. How up, you, up for getting stretched you actually are is going to determine how likely it is that you will grow. How likely it is that you're actually going to get stronger. But there's a second part of that truth that I want us to think about tonight is that just because you aren't looking at the place of tension, just because you are ignoring the invitation to change some things, just because you are turning a blind eye to bad patterns in your life, just because you aren't looking at the place of tension, that doesn't mean you aren't living with it. Just because this isn't a battle that you are willing to choose today, that doesn't mean that this battle won't choose you tomorrow. Eventually, life has this strange way of catching up to us. We can run as fast as we want, but eventually life is going to catch up to us. This is why in the AA community they say, everywhere you go, there you are. You can keep running, but you're not as fast as you think you are. Everywhere you go, there you are, and it will catch up to you. The Israelites, they come to this point where life catches up to them, where all these years of stupidity and missteps and straying from the path that they were purposed and put on finally catches up to them, and they feel broken. They feel like they are at the end of their own rope, and they can't keep the facade up anymore. And so God says to Elijah, son of man, say to the Israelites, listen to this, God says to Elijah, son of man, say to the Israelites, this is what you are saying. Our offenses and our sins weigh us down and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? I love this idea in this text. I love what is actually being said because God says to Elijah, tell them what they already told you. Say to them, what they first said to you. Um, talk to them about the storm that they first brought to you. 
Why, that doesn't make any sense. Why do we start in that place, God? Why would we do that? Because when the sun comes up, human beings have a way to push the storm back down. You know, it's easy for us to focus. My kids the other day were climbing trees, scraped up their hands, and there's blood all over Wyatt's hands because we leave nails out. Don't call CPS on us. But Wyatt comes in with a bloody hand, and it's very easy to be focused in that moment on how do we bandage this wound when there's blood on our hands, but it becomes very difficult when it's internal bleeding and there's damage on our hearts. When we have some deeper things that we've been carrying with us for many years now, but it's all of a sudden we get these moments where we're aware of it, but then we get to the sunshine again. We don't have to be aware of it anymore. We can move on instead of moving down and going into the depths of it all. It's so easy to realize that you have a problem when it's problematic, but what about when it's not? It's very easy to realize you have a drinking problem when you wake up in a stranger's bed and you're not sure how you got there, but it's very difficult to do so when you're functioning just fine. It's very easy to um, realize you have some money issues when you blow all your cash on some Mickey Mouse operation, but it's more difficult to do so when that actually works out. There are these crisis moments that make us aware of these acute problems, but there are common Mondays that make us forget. And so I love how God says to Elijah to tell them that he remembers what they told him because it is hard to sustain our concern with our internal conditions. God is reminding them, though, that this is all still a problem. Just because you don't want to look at it doesn't mean you aren't living with it. Just because you buried it deep within you doesn't mean it's not going to come and hijack what's in front of you. They said to themselves, all the things that we have done in the past, uh, the missteps, the damages, the things that we have done in the past, we feel like we're wasting away in the present. Let me ask you this. Have you ever felt like you're just wasting away because of past missteps? The word there in Hebrew for wasting away is makah, and it is this idea of dissolving, disappearing, losing your sense of self. Uh, I'm wasting away. There is something that happened behind me that is keeping me from being fully here to what's in front of me. We had a plumber coming over this past week uh, because for whatever reason, like all of our toilets just stopped working. And so this guy gets here, and after all, I apologize profusely for all the YouTube videos and things that I tried to do to fix it prior to giving him an actual call. I told him, I said, the toilets, they just won't turn on. And the guy says to me, well, you know, they've seen you naked for many years now, and so it's not as easy to get excited like they once could. <laughs> you don't like that joke, Debbie? That's great, a comedic material. Christian gave a thumbs up. But I had him come in, and I'm thinking, like, we're going to, I'm actually worried about this. Like, there's going to be massive damage. He's going to unveil, and I'm going to have this massive bill. Turns out, I asked him to fix something that was a very easy fix. It is literally 20 minutes later in a new flapper, and he's done. He wraps up. So I'm like, oh, this is great. 20 minutes, in and out, barely had a real chance to get to know each other. I say, how much is it going to cost me? $200. 20 minutes, $200. Okay. So I write the check, but in my head I'm thinking, how could something so basic cost me so much? How come a problem that was so small make me pay so much? You see where I'm going with this right now. Have you asked that question about your own past and how you're still paying for a small problem in your past now in the present? You are still paying for that one thing that wasn't that big of a molehill back then, but now it's turned into a mountain right here. How can something so small 
turn it to something that I'm paying for that is so big? How come my dad's words on that one Tuesday afternoon 45 years ago are still echoing inside of me today? How come that one time that one girl said no to me to a prom is impacting my ability to believe that anybody will say yes to me in the future? How come that one time I was passed over for a promotion suddenly turned into this thing where I believe that I am not worthy of any kind of promotion? How did that one thing happen that is now keeping all the other things from happening? How did that moment of pain turn into this life that is more of a pathology? See, I can only answer for me. And, and while I understand that the inflation rate in our country is around 2%, I believe, don't, don't, don't quote me on that, Mine tends to be much, much higher because I have a thing where it's, if I have a moment in my past that inflicted angst or made me cringe, I will double down and make it bigger than it actually was and I will bear the burden of that weight. I'll make it, I'll inflate it in my head and I'll try to carry it around as if it's normal, but it's leaving me with a limp and I'm called to sprint. You are called to sprint and yet you're walking with a limp. And so what I do personally, when I think about this in my, in my own personal weights from the places that I've walked in, I'll try to belittle it in me and put something more impressive on the outside of me. If I can be successful, then that'll at least do the job. If I, can, if I can find a way to shine, to gloss up something about me, then I don't have to take care of the things that are actually inside of me. I don't have to deal with any of that stuff. I won't actually deal with it. You know, Jeremiah, perhaps bougie, he actually talks about this at one point, and he says when he's critiquing the people who are looking at his pain, he says, these people, they dress the wound of my people as if it weren't serious. Man, that's a word for our time right now. A lot of white Americans looking at black pain in our country, and I can hear the Spirit of God saying, these people are trying to dress my wound, my people's wound, as if it is not serious. Look again. There are serious problems. Jeremiah is saying, people are trying to dress my wound as if it is not serious, saying, peace, peace. But there is no peace. Why do they dress that wound as if it is not serious? Because they've learned how to dress their own wounds as if they're not serious. Because they've learned how to put band-aids on their body when they should have put stitches in. For many of you, I know that you've done amazing things. We celebrate your success. We celebrate all the different trophies that you have picked up over the years, your family, that you are a loving person, that you have arrived, that you are doing different things. We celebrate and see all of your success, but I want you to know that what happened to you, it's serious. That thing in your past, that, that matters. We're not going to dress that wound as if it's not serious because it is serious. The rejection that you felt in sixth grade that you are still feeling at the age of 60, that's serious. The way that they pushed you around because they didn't like that you didn't look like them or love like them or think like them. And the isolation and the angst that that brought onto you, that's, that's serious. The way that your father failed to father you or your mother failed to mother you, that's, that's serious. And you can have all of these wins in all of your world, but at some point, if that wound isn't treated, that wound will become infected. It will be sitting around with pockets full of cash and rooms filled with friends and we will have achieved enough, accomplished enough, been loved enough and still none of it will actually feel like it's enough because there's still something inside of us that went untreated and is now infected. I wonder if we can do better though. 
See, I think one of the lies when we think about success, I think we have this, I don't think we'd say it this way, but I think we feel like if I gather up enough success in my life, that will be a, a sufficient substitute for actually doing surgery. And so we have this idea that in order to get better, we just need to keep going forward. But I think the gospel truth is that if you want to get better, you got to go back. You have to turn around. I think this is why Jesus spent so many hours talking about the importance of living lives and building our stories on good foundations. Because Jesus understood that at the bottom, what you are building your life on, if it's a fragile foundation, it doesn't matter how high it is or how luxurious it has become, it will take the lightest amount of wind and the whole thing will fall down. I actually believe, and I I was talking to my wife about this back home, that many fights in marriages and relationships, they're not about what we think that they're about. They're not actually about who's taking care more of the kids or our lack of communication issues or our inability to be present at their homes. We're actually having fights about our foundation. They're just now manifesting in different ways. Have you checked on your foundation? Have you gotten better by going backwards or are you just trying to keep a stiff upper lip and not looking at the things you are still living with? You have to go back if you're going to get better. That is the word teshuva in the Hebrew scripture that ends up here. Return to the path. Turn around to where you were. Go back to that moment. You have to get better. You have to go back if you're actually going to get better. And the good news of the gospel is the answer to Ezekiel's initial question. Is that if you are scared of going back to that place that you do not want to go, The good news is that God is in Babylon, and God is waiting for you to be there too. Will you do me a favor and and stand up on your feet wherever you are? Um, I know this is weird. You're in your living room. You're maybe with a stranger in that room. Actually, why would you be with a stranger in your room? Even if it's with your wife, it might be a little weird, but I'm going to invite you to do it all the same. I am watching this with you at this present moment. I will be doing it with Lauren. Debbie, get on your flipping feet right now. Thank you. Will you do me a favor and stand on the feet wherever you are? Now, I want you to do this exercise. I want you to ball your fists and just close your eyes. But don't do like a, uh, I want like fierce, bald fists, like you're going to punch somebody in the face type ball fist. Now, I want you to think about the fists and the squeezing of the hands, and I want you to think that in your hands is that person or that place or that loss or that shame or that angst or that moment that whenever you think about it, it makes you cringe and wish that it never happened, that thing that's made you want to protect yourself from your future instead of opening your eyes to see the one who's holding it. I want you to think about that. I want you to picture it because the reality is that it's still here. The reality is that it actually did happen. There is no undoing what's been done. We don't get to go back and raise those kids again. We don't get to go back and take away that divorce. We don't get to walk back into the room that we once walked out of There is no recovering from what was once lost, what was once taken, what was once said, or the person who stayed silent. We can't go back. It's there. And so feel the weight of that in the fists that are bald. You cannot take it back, but you can go back. You can return to Babylon, where the kavod of God, the weight of God, is actually there waiting for you. God is in the place that you least want to go. God is in the face that you least want to see. God is in the cold shoulders that turns you into a cold person. God is in the broken dreams that made you 
terrified of nightmares. God is in the rehab room that you are scared you won't make it out of alive. God is in the honesty of a marriage. God is in those moments where your kid texts you from school saying, I hate this, nobody's sitting by me at lunch, how much longer? And all you can do is pray that somebody will fill that empty seat. God is in all of those places that you don't want to go. That's where God is, standing next to your infection, asking how long will you walk with a limp when you could walk with the Lord instead? How long will it take until you go backwards so that you can actually get better? Now release your hands. Unball your fists. And collectively, we pray for you and we pray with you that you would do the hard work. This is not a flipping of the switch. What has been building up for years is going to take years to break back down. But this is a starting moment. We go to Babylon. We hear Ezekiel's words. We sustain our focus and believe that there is a serious problem and we won't dress it up as if it isn't. God is in Babylon, God is waiting for you, and we will walk every inch with you to get where you are trying to go. We love you, church. We can't wait to see you next week. And now I'm going to have Debbie lead us in the words of institution. We all have wounds, don't we? Those things, those broken places uh, inside of us that we carry around. Those things, as Matt talked about, that were once small, but somehow we pay a big price for those things. We protect ourselves and we dress those wounds, those hurts. And the funny thing about that is when we dress those wounds, those things, that pain, it comes out sideways. And it not only impacts the life that God has for us, it impacts the people in our lives, the community that we're a part of. But the beauty of Sunday nights when we gather together for communion is that this moment, in this moment, in this space, we can undress those wounds. We can come before a God who walked around the countryside and healed and preached and taught us what it meant to live a life of vulnerability, to move toward freedom, to put those hurts and those wounds in his hands. And that same God sat at a table with his disciples the night before he died, and he took bread. And he broke that bread, and he said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. And Jesus then took the cup, and he poured wine into that cup, and he said, this is my blood shed for you, the new covenant. And when you drink from this cup, remember me. So in this moment, when you're taking the bread and you're dipping it into the cup, I encourage you all, undress those wounds. Bring that pain to the God that hung on a cross, the God that died for us, the God that rose again, promising us new life. And that's what happens, new life, a full life, when we can undress those wounds. So hear these words as you take your bread or cracker and dip it into your wine or water. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. And now together, let's pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever. Amen. Please join us as we worship together.